Hi, I'm Steve Joel, and welcome to Champions of 40K, in which we meet people who are champions of some part of our fantastic hobby, be it big or small. Sounds great. I imagine this time of the day life will be happening around you. Will people be up and getting breakfast and things like that? And um, Probably my wife in about 20, 30 minutes or so. Okay, oh, um, okay. All right. All right. There is so much coming in the next hour, including some of the best tips and advice for improving your own tournament play that I've heard, and from the best in the world. Before we get started, all of the episodes of this series are available at stevejoel40k.com or check out Steve Joel's World of 40K on Facebook. Any questions, comments, feedback, whatever, I'd love to hear from you. You can get me on Instagram as well. There, I think those are the formalities out of the way. So let's meet this week's champion. All right, so here we go. Uh, champions of 40K uh, normally deals with a champion of the hobby. Today we're talking literally to a champion of 40K, a member of the Australian team that won the WTC. The man that also earned the most individual points at the team's event and won the singles event before the team's event, beating the best players from all over the world. He co-hosts the Normal Blokes podcast and runs events, aside from being the world champion of 40K, is also a champion of the Australian scene. Liam Hackett, thanks so much for being on the program. Good morning, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. The doc. Uh, I just the first thing I wanted to ask is you've like you've you've you're a doctor, you've work about a million hours a week, you're overworked probably, you've just got married. And uh, how do you fit 40k into your life playing it, let alone doing podcasting and events and everything else? I mean, 2022 has been a pretty exceptional year for a lot of people. Um, Schedule-wise, mine's absolutely been jam-packed. I've always kind of lived by a little bit of an adage that uh, busy people make time, uh, yeah. free people use time. You know, um, for example, uh, you're right, I, I work reasonably long hours. Um, I'm a doctor here in Brisbane, uh, Queensland in Australia, and uh, a medical doctor. And so I, I might work for 60, maybe 70 hours a week on a on a particularly scary week yeah. but you know that'll be a situation of i work 8 30 to 4 30 and then i might work a 8 30 p.m shift and so i've got four hours in between my shifts and i might come home and i might fit a quick game in. i might go to the gym i might wow. paint half i'm doing renovations i might pat a cat kiss my wife <laughs> and, then go, and then go back to work um and you know i i think that i've always sort of lived by that motto that if you want to get something done you'll make time sleep is not optional though i will always try and get my sleep but yeah no i i've always fitted in um it's always been something that i absolutely enjoy and even though the game is and can be stressful and, and high stakes at times when it comes to playing games on top of my pool table in front of my bar that's a de-stress for me this yeah. is what i do after work yeah yeah i find it de-stressing to paint like playing I mean, I don't play at your level, obviously, but uh, playing I really enjoy, probably enjoy it the most. But in terms of de-stressing and getting my brain out of something, painting is is probably where it started for me in 40K. Are you a, are you a painting person as well, or is it all about the playing? Uh, I'm going to level with you. There is almost nothing I dislike more than painting 48 <laughs> minutes. Uh, but look, everyone's different. And that, that's one of the things that makes this hobby so interesting is that it has multiple completely different aspects to it. Yeah. You know, the building, the hobbying, the painting, the narrative, um, and, and then the competitive side of the game, it has different opportunities for everyone. Yeah. For me, for me personally, 
uh, as probably evidenced by the Necron army that I took to the World Team Champs that you mentioned. Um, I paint to the minimum possible standard as quickly as humanly possible. Right. And I do not lie about that. I do not um, try and sugarcoat that. That is what I do. Uh, the only thing that's a close second in my hatred is building models. <laughs> I, 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 I honestly do not enjoy the hobby side of this well, hobby. That's funny. Um, but luckily for me, um, I'm surrounded by an incredible group of hobbyists and friends who will give me a hand or who uh, are willing to do that, you know, for either a trade in some models or even like a little bit of cash remuneration. Got some brilliant painters around us um, here in Brisbane who are happy to help, which is always good. How do you feel about grey models on the table, like if you're doing practice games? I know some people are very strict. Some people uh, try and take grey models even to tournaments, so there's a real range in between. Are you happy to, to sub in grey for a practice game? Uh, Absolutely. So yeah. I, I feel I feel really, really strongly about this. I think that um, we do play a game that, let's not lie, even with the advent of 3D printing, it's an expensive hobby. Yeah. And the reality of an expensive hobby is that you know not everyone who plays the game is working full-time, not everyone in the game is in a financial position to just go out and buy a whole army retail from Games Workshop. And so I think that if you're going to do that, just like any investment, you should have a try before you buy sort of system. So I really strongly advocate to my friends and the people who are starting the game and competitive tournament players, the Australian team, I would encourage those people to proxy, to put grey models or put even other models on the table to try different yeah. things so you know what you're buying. I mean, the reality of this as well is that you might well have decided that you're going to take to a tournament an army that isn't fully painted, provided you are playing in a scene that actually accepts that and goes, yep, you should lose the 10 Battleforged points. I think that's a completely, re it's actually in the rules of the game. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do if you decide to do it. The one thing I won't ever advocate for, though, is the uh, and i hope you don't mind me saying the subset of people who will go to tournaments not have a painted army and then do their absolute damnness to try and get those 10 battleforged points anyway right. the reality is this hobby does take time i painted 360 gretchen for australia for a um uh cancom which is an event here a couple of years ago in 48 hours oh my and God. i did that and that wasn't 48 hours straight that was after work two days yeah and 360 gretchen to a battleforged level and that's to be saying that if you do a quick google search plan ahead you can paint a full army in a couple of days you actually can yeah it may not be to a standard that's going to win you a golden demon but the excuse that you've never had time to paint an army especially if you're going to a big event that you've known about for months i frankly don't accept as an excuse yeah i'm a, i'm big on getting your models painted in fact to be fair <laughs> No wonder you hate painting, God. <laughs> painting that many yeah, good point. I haven't made it easy for myself. <laughs> <laughs> painting that many. But that's how I get models painted. That's my motivation for painting is if I've got a tournament to go to, I'm like, man, I've got to get this army done before I go. And I do like to have it done to a certain standard. So try and get it done. And you get it done before the event. And if it's not painted, well, I'll take something else. But, but I do love the proxying as well because, and again, not playing to your level, but – Quite often, you'll see a, a data sheet and you'll go, yeah, man, that looks good. And then you'll get that model on the table and it doesn't perform the way you thought it was. It doesn't. It's not as killy or not as durable or whatever. Or maybe, you know, you need five of them to make the thing work or whatever it might be. Sometimes things don't play out on the table the way you thought they would. So proxying things and getting an idea of whether or not you really need this in your armies 
especially if you're paying Aussie and New Zealand prices for things. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of Aussie and New Zealand, sometimes things just don't get to the bottom of the world. Yeah, I mean, we're, you know, we're having problems with those Votan land fortresses. Um, there were heaps of problems getting those heavy intercessors for a while. There are sometimes stock issues that mean that, look, there are things that are relevant in the meta that we just can't buy. So you're either going to have to convert or proxy up if you want to get some relevant meta practice. Pretending, for example, that a box set of models doesn't exist in the meta purely because your local store can't stock it is if you're going to be a competitive player and you're thinking about traveling for events, it's just not a reasonable attitude to No. Did you hear the story, and I don't know how legit this is, uh, a story about a, a container that fell off a ship, like a whole container that was on its way to you and then us and just fell in the water. And so codexes and things weren't able to make it. This is a few months ago. I don't know if you caught that. I, I, I did see, um, uh, look, this is probably not the most savory of memes, but I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> I did see a very funny meme that was like the evergreen container blocking like the canal, except the evergreen container was like filled with guardsmen. And it's like yeah. the, the, the wall stands. It's like Katie, the, the, the canal broke before the guard did. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah it's, very, it's very 40K. It's very 40K. Uh, now, I kind of got off on a tangent there. I had this whole... Uh, nice logical line of questioning that I wanted to follow. I started with how busy you are. I know you uh, recently got married. I hope it's okay to bring up personal life. Um, your wife must be, your new wife must be very understanding about all this time spent in hobby. I guess you knew what she was getting into because you were already a 40K <laughs> guy. But uh, how does that play out? She's all okay with all of this stuff. Yeah, so uh, I've been with my um, my girlfriend, my fiance, and now my wife for a total of about uh, – 10 and a half years now. So we've been together for quite a long time. Um, In terms of the hobby stuff, you know, she's very understanding. She doesn't get it. And I think she hates it a little (laughs) bit too. Um, But also the sort of the way we kind of navigate that is that I've got got a calendar. I keep a very, very up-to-date calendar. So she knows when I'm going to events. She knows when I've got a mate coming over for a game. And the spare spots in the calendar are completely fair game to book anything else in so the the social calendar is always quite busy but i also make sure that she knows exactly where i'm going and why not for like a oh he's running away sort of thing but because it's not a on a friday night i'm not packing all my models and go see you for the weekend and they have no idea where i'm going right i think kind of communication makes you know going to a lot of events and things very easy the other thing we did um which is actually really cool and this is pretty recently is there was an event here in australia called the vtc the victorian team championships um, which is a, a four-man team event, five-man team event. And it was in Melbourne. And I took um, a, a number of Queensland boys. Anyway, three of us brought either our wives or our girlfriends to that event, and they did a concurrent girls' trip with bottomless mimosas. And they, <laughs> had, and they absolutely loved We saw Hamilton musical. Anyway, the point was it was doing a concurrent yeah. wives and girlfriends trip and a Warhammer trip worked absolutely swimmingly that was it was awesome uh, it worked very very well and yeah. it made everyone feel like that it wasn't our time wasted which i think is a big thing. yeah that's a really great idea actually for people who are traveling if you're traveling to an event on the vtc you have a lot of teams events it seems around australia we're all always seeing has that been a like a strategy over the last couple of years to to build up to the wtc or has it always been a thing where the uh, you know there are various teams events in different parts of the country 
in the time that I've been playing 40k, that's always been a bit of a staple here. Right. I don't think it's an intentional strategy. And I only say that because there isn't really a central power behind Australian 40k that, that would be able to organize that. Um, the states kind of all do reasonably separate things for their, their local communities. But team events are immensely popular. They almost invariably sell out in a couple of days. They are hugely popular for like, sponsorship, for stores, for gaming stores and stuff here, which kind of speaks to how you know people in Australia like the game. Mm. I think more so at the turn of the edition, there was a big impetus for more team events because people recognised they, they felt, especially from a more casual player's perspective, that the game was grossly unbalanced. And so because of that, there were kind of two roads to take. You could have a uh, high-pitched complain and really sort of stop playing the game quite a bit, or you could promote a tournament format that encourages play regardless of game balance. Because if your team's unbalanced, provided you've done your research, another team should be equally unbalanced, and it's more about how you use the resources. Right. So I, I'm in that camp. I love team events, and I've, you know, I've played five team events this year alone, excluding the WTC, which it has been exceptional for me as a 40K year to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I, we'll get to the WTC in a second, but since you've mentioned balance, how do you feel about the game at the moment? As someone who plays at your level with a great overview of, you know, tournament play, you've been to a heap of tournaments, individual and team. It feels to me like it's, it's I want to say, as balanced as it's ever been in the time I've been in the game, which is not as long as you, but where do you see things for now? No, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the advent of Nephilim did more for the game than I expected it to. Mm. And I'll be honest, I'm happy to admit that I was wrong. When I heard that Nephilim was coming out, I was thinking that it was going to grossly debalance the game because of the idea that everyone can just take three of their faction secondaries. The reality was, was that the faction secondaries themselves provide sort of a bit of sub-game balance in that, for example, an army like Tyranids does not have three auto-take secondaries, despite the fact that the Tyranids Codex itself is a horrifically powerful book. And so you sort of provide your own game balance with the secondaries. I think the game is in an excellent spot at the moment. I'm having not just a lot of fun playing the game, but I'm finding that you're going to go to a tournament and I think there's a large number of armies that can contend yeah. at that level. Um, and that, that list changes quite a lot because as we've kind of seen, the advent of new books like, for example, Votan and now we're getting Guard, even though those books will inevitably be powerful, them in the meta makes other secondary options more viable. And so then other armies, even without a buff, might sort of scoop their way back into the meta. I'm with you. I think the game's in an awesome spot. I'm, it, I'm really happy. It feels like um, it feels like every army has an army that can beat it. Like ne talking about secondaries, Necrons have some secondaries which are basically I'm going to get a hundred points. Let's see what you can do. But <laughs> but there are armies that can counter Necrons really really well. And then, like you said, we're seeing other armies come out like orcs. We're seeing for some reason now. At tournaments around the world, uh, orc armies, specific builds, but coming up and doing really well. There are other random, yeah. random armies come out of nowhere. Suddenly people who play at your level and the John Lennons and Jack Harpsters of the world are going, well, actually, hold on. 
if these guys, the Votan, Necrons, Nids, are doing super well, I think I know a way to beat them, and it's playing some random army we haven't seen for ages. Exactly. And because all armies now have a much bigger pool of secondaries to pick from, mm. you can actually build specific lists to do specific missions. The example being, you know, the Orc armies. There were some Orc secondaries that hinged around your warlord doing specific things. The the biggest and the best is the name of that secondary. And it felt like for a while, building an Orc list to do that was probably not a good idea because there were other Orc secondaries that were just better, like get the good bits. But now you can do both. And yeah. so you've got the Orc army that didn't in, didn't directly get a buff, but indirectly because of a mission packet, it used more of its own codex. That's what I found funny about Nephilim. It didn't actually give anybody new rules, really. It changed some secondary, sure. What it actually allowed is for armies to use more of their own codex. Yeah, which I loved uh, as a guy. I play Space Wolves and now Knights. But um, as a guy who previously had to go, well, I kind of need to take Engage or Retrieve. Exactly. I have to take that. But now I don't because there are there are just other options and other ways to build a list into secondaries that you can go, cool, now I have some fun stuff I can do without having to settle for two points every turn on bloody <laughs> Engage. Um, anyway... Well, look, let's. can we talk WTC? And I'm sure you've talked about this with lots of people, but uh, I'd just love to know, you know, some of the stuff around it. First of all, what's it like to play 45 hours of, of Warhammer? You must have been, God, shattered at the end of that. I can't even play five or six games in a weekend without feeling exhausted. So uh, if you if you look at the photo of me and yeah, a few running around, I'm pretty sure I looked like a husk of a human being. Um, I was overwhelmingly excited. I was so happy. I was a wee bit inebriated. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was absolutely exhausted because, especially after the team's event, it was our, our last round against Poland. Sorry to sort of skip ahead and spoiler alert, but our last round against Poland was so nail-biting, so draining. Yeah. And my game was over so early that I had like this hour period of nothing but alcohol and stress, which was this. And so then when it sort of all came shattering down and the, the yelling and the cheering stopped, I just deflated. I'd, I'd honestly been running on adrenaline and stress brain energy for two, three, four, five days. Right. And it just, ah, oh, so yes, it was utterly exhausting. Yeah. As a medical professional, would you recommend alcohol and stress as a way to deal with the situation? Uh, so I would strongly recommend more sleep and probably more coffee. I mean, part of the fatigue issues for WTC were out of uh, anyone's control, right. uh, namely the fact that it was 30-something degrees in a country, Belgium, which is not designed like Australia is for that level of heat. Like None of the buildings are really built for such a horrific heat wave for them. Um and also, because of the nature of the event and how, how packed it was, I think it was the, the first day of teams. We did three rounds, finishing at 10, 10.30 p.m. and had to be back at 7 a.m. the next day for the next round, which meant that um, after you go and get a cheeky midnight kebab in Belgium, you are getting five, six hours sleep, which yeah. on the back of a whole day of hobby is rough. You need more red. So I'd love to know if you've got tips or advice or help for people who 
Again, just speaking personally, I do find last game on day two of an event, and this is, we're only talking five or six games, right? I find that last game is tough going just to, to really stay focused on what the other guy's doing and what I should be doing. You end up forgetting things that you normally wouldn't, all that sort of stuff. Do you have tips on how to stay in the game and in the moment? There's someone who probably never listened to a Warhammer podcast called Ben Hackett, who's my older cousin. And I distinctly remember being annihilated by Ben in Super Smash Brothers as a young man, <laughs> as in when I was about eight. And Ben used to always talk about something called gamers endurance, where you're going to have particular people who can sit in front of a computer and play a game for like 24 hours straight. And these are the sort of people who, um, that sort of gamers endurance, I see it in 40K. I, I do see it in Warhammer where if you go to a three-day event on the final day, you're going to have that one dude who's coming up to the table and he's, he's, you know, he's jumping around and he's really excited to be there and he's having a great time. And you're going to see the person who's literally asleep under the table. Right. And you have this whole spectrum in between. In terms of tips and how to stay focused, you know, I think that um, you have to pace yourself and you have to pick your battles. And I, I think that if you're going to an event, let, let's, for argument's sake, say you're going to like a seven-round event over three days, right. like a 3-2-2, a, a two, two, which seems to be done a fair bit, or even just a 2-2-2, a, two, 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 a three-day event. If you're going to these events, the odds of, especially if you're going to win or you're going to try and win or come top 10, the odds of you playing six out of six games against opponents who are top-tier opponents is pretty low. But equally, as with every hobby sport, there's a spectrum of opponents too, in that you're going to have opponents who are really laid back and really relaxed, and you're going to have opponents who you probably have to be a bit more vigilant against. Uh, you know, that's, an un that's a part of the game that's unfortunate, but I, I think we can all agree exists. And so I'm very um, sensible in the sense that what I will always do is I will get to the table, I will, I wouldn't say high alert, but I pay quite a lot of attention to the early part of the game. And then I work out pretty quickly what sort of opponent I'm playing. If I'm playing a really high skill opponent, I've obviously got to um, try really hard and give my absolute best. But equally, if I'm playing an opponent who's perhaps more precise uh, and more rules as written rather than rules as intended, then I also have to spend quite a bit more time making sure my gameplay is absolutely by the book. I've played people who... For example, um, you might go to the psychic phase but forget to do an action and want to go back, and they'll be like, no, no, you can't do that. You've gone to the psychic phase. At a tournament, I accept that. That's rules as written. But I've also played world-class players who are in the shooting phase who go back and do actions because they forgot, mm. and, that's, that's, and that's much more relaxing. So in terms of pacing yourself, if you play all of your games at 100%, rules as written, by the book, and you're playing really high-skill opponents, of course you're going to get fatigued. But equally, you should notice pretty early on when your opponents are not that. And that's good because it means you can take a bit of a step back, still play a game. I'm not saying you should be willy-nilly and, and throw things away. But equally, you don't have to have that level of stress, that level of vigilance that comes from playing someone you know is going to be watching for that 2.01-inch coherency and try and kill half your squad, right. which is completely not in the spirit of the game. Are you a, a play-by-intent guy? And you hear this a lot, uh, people like Brad Chester talk about it, where you... You'll talk through what, you know, these guys are behind the wall, obviously not touching the wall, you know, just letting people know as you're moving models where they're supposed to be. You agree on the charge range in case a model is bumped. You agree as you're moving, okay, I'm going to charge with these guys, and that would be, what, five inches. Do you do all this talking all the way through a game? 
Yeah, so um, the other thing I'd say about fatigue on the note of talking is um, if you can, try and talk a little bit less and also drink an ungodly amount of water. Right. Uh, I think I drink 10 litres plus at, a, at a, big, a big event. I'm serious because I talk so much. When I'm playing the game, I talk command phase, movement phase, psych phase, shooting. I, I talk my intent through literally everything. I even yeah. sign at the end of phases. I, when I'm moving models, I'm like, hi, this guy is 1.1 inches back from the wall so that if you don't have breachable, you can't charge me. Do you agree? And I, I, I ask my opponent questions as well. Yeah, I like to involve them. Like, for example, when I measure something, I don't just go 18 and then shut the tape measure. I keep it there and I go, you agree we're about 18 away? And they go, yep, no worries. So that when we get to the next turn, when they're moving, you know, if, if they move six and suddenly they're 10 away, something's gone wrong. But we both know that something's gone yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's really important. And it's this is something I've learned from other people who I've played. Because uh, I was never very good at that. You would think someone who talks for a living would be great at talking through a game as well. But I'm so focused on what I'm doing, I forget. And I've played a couple of people who are so good at it that I that I then am able, I'm now able to much better do it. Um. So with the the other thing with the WTC, I wanted to know. I know you won the individual, and that was amazing. And that you know your your uh, Aussie teammates really celebrated that with you. Uh, but how good was the teams win? I mean, that must have, was that the was that the the ultimate? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. So the, the teams win for me was obviously, and by a huge margin, the biggest and most important thing that's ever happened in the time that I've been playing forty k uh, for both myself and Team Australia. And I think the reason why it was so uh, important is that oh, a couple of reasons. Uh, the main reason is that I, I'm rooting for our captain, uh, Eric, from 2022. He's been working at this for uh, four years and a lot of time and effort has gone into not just the gameplay wise, but to be honest, for a team event, there's politics. There is a little bit of, of stuff behind the scenes, not just selecting the team, but the people who think they should be on the team, the people who don't want to support the team, which there is always going to be a faction of people. And Eric's been fighting hard for a long time to upskill people like me, to be perfectly honest, to get people to a level where we can go and contend with those names you mentioned, the, the Brad Chesters, the Jack Harpsters, the John Lennons. Um, and we finally got to a point with our team where we felt we could do it and we had to put our money where our mouth is. It's all well and good to sit in Australia 3,000 kilometres away from um, the next biggest tournament in, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. And we think we can do X, we think we can do Y. But until you actually do it, I understand that no one believes we can. I mean, I, I think that's the evidence is the best way to practice, right? Um, I think that's a way that both uh, myself and my wife would say in our respective jobs. Um, the other reason why it was so important for me um, is that from our perspective, it was also that we travelled so far and spent so much money yeah. to be there that, you know, it, it's a – we got some sponsorship, but, you know, to put it in perspective, it's about 5000 Australian dollars before sponsorship and before fundraising per person to go over to this event. I don't know roughly what that is in, like, US dollars or euros, but the reality is that for you to spend – $60,000, that was the 12-man team, including our four coaches, to go over there and come back with a second or a third, that's still excellent. That's still amazing. But it's a pretty poor return on investment. So for us to spend sixty grand to go over, coming back with the W, with the first-place trophies, meant that it 
it, it did feel like just dollars well spent. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, I talked to uh, Diffie about the first Aussie team to go to an ETC, as it was then, and he told a great story about uh, checking the drinking rules. Being the first question asked by an Australian at an ETC event was, <laughs> "What time can we start drinking?" or something along those lines. Really setting that stereotype right from the beginning. I saw that the Australians won the uh, best opponent, or uh, what's the official title for the? You know what I mean. I think they called it that just um, best sportsman. Sport. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that that. You weren't just playing at that high level. You're also maintaining that Australian friendly, low key kind of guy attitude on the way through. Uh, yeah, I just I wanted to touch on that and see if there were any moments that might have happened in the event that you can reflect on. Not necessarily all out binge drinking, but you know what I mean. Just kind of having fun on the way through and how important that is. So I think that a lot of this attitude is easier to do in teams events. And one of the other reasons that I love them, and I, I know I harped on about them before, is that when you're in a team event, your individual game is really going to be the only factor that decides around. And so, for example, if I'm playing against somebody and I'm losing, but I'm fighting for every point, I've still done my job. I've still achieved what my captain, what our pairings team wants and needs me to do. And so part of that makes being a good sport, to be honest, easier. Because you can lose the game, still smile, still have a beer with your opponent afterwards. Yeah. The other advantage of being a good sport, you can do incredibly easy things that are, are not calculated. It's just things that make life easier. It's that provided you're going fine for time, which just as a bit of an aside, rounds of the WTC were three and a half to four hours. Wow. Which, which from from my from my perspective was way too much time. I mean. <laughs> I know three-hour rounds, some places are common. Here in Australia, two-and-a-half-hour rounds is the, is the go-to. And I've played events before that are two hours 15. Um, I have, I think I've cocked out once in the entire time I've ever played 40K. I, don't, I think time is something that you know, people should uh, use and everyone should get better at using that. But um, if you've got time, stopping during your game, having a chat, actually talking to your opponent and treating them like a human being, are simple things that make your games with people memorable. Yeah. Um, I, I remember, you know, extremely uh, distinctly, you know, I'm um, playing, we're playing against Sweden uh, and I'm playing uh, my Swedish opponent who is playing Admech. And from his perspective, um, we played that game and we finished in an hour and a half. So we went for a walk. We got a bagel. <laughs> we came back and had a beer. Wow. And we just we just hung out and we, we were sort of walking because if you imagine the eight tables for the round are in a in a horizontal line. So we he and I are walking up and down the the team line together. So right. you know, one, one Swedish player and one Australian player sort of walking together, like going to every game and being like, Oh, who's winning? And sort of felt like people had to give you objective responses because we've got both players, like a player yeah. from either team. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Offering your opponent a bottle of water if you're going to get a one euro bottle of water from the, the shop. I mean, that's not going to break your bank. It's also human, and they'll they'll pay you back later. Yeah. These are things that kind of are, I think part of the social contract of playing 40k. Because again, I do not want to spend five thousand Australian dollars to go over and argue about the difference between half an inch and point six yeah, of an inch yeah. with someone who, you know, may well, that their entire world may rest on that. And I, I just don't think that's the spirit of the game. 
yeah, yeah. Who was the uh, the toughest? You already mentioned Poland being like that. That was like on a knife edge, and it was therefore probably the toughest of your rounds. Uh, but for you, who was the toughest opponent or the toughest team to play against? Is there someone else that features? Um, uh, sorry, it, it is Poland. Right. Uh, both okay. in terms of toughest team and toughest individual opponent. So th- throughout the event, um, you, you mentioned that I got the uh, highest overall team score. Um, my Polish opponent took more points off me than the entire rest of the WTC. Um, wow. A- a- every other round. So I got a 14-6 um, spread uh, against my Polish opponent. Um, for people listening, the way WTC scoring works, if you haven't encountered it before, is that um, if you beat your opponent by zero to four points, you get a draw. And then for every multiple of five after that, it's like an extra point to a maximum of 20 zero. So to get a max win at 20 zero, you've got to beat someone by 51 points, which is pretty exceptional. Like that's 100 to 49, which is a, that's a big win. Yeah. So, um, I got 14-6 into my Polish opponent, and he was playing Necrons. So it was a Necron mirror, and that was – not only was that a tough game, um, but he was an exceptional opponent, like honestly, truly exceptional. Because he – you know, you know, like the meme again of he understood the mission. He understood the mission. He worked out very quickly that I had more fast melee units than him, but he had more shooting units than me. Right. So right up and down, what he did was he – he moved and he scouted and he used terrain and he had nine inch measuring sticks and he surrounded his units with like five or six of these sticks being like, if you use your veil of darkness to teleport, that's exactly where you can go. Do you agree? And it was a bit of deja vu actually, because he, he actually does what I do um, without prompting. It was sort of like, um, do you agree that this is where you can go? So I'm making him sound very harsh. He was like, you know, do you agree that you can go here? And I'm like, yes, that's where I can teleport to. Do you agree that if you move 14, this dice is where you can move? I'm like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and so the, the game was almost this choreographed script where we both were telling a story and it kind of just followed the plan. But it was by intent but still my most challenging game by a significant margin right. for the WTC. Yeah. I know you uh, you spoke to the Contact Lost guys, right, uh, in a podcast yeah. not very long ago. So, and, and I'm assuming you reflected that to them as well. They must have been raped to hear that Poland was your toughest game. Ab- absolutely. Um, my Polish opponent is quite young, was quite young, is quite young still. It's only been like three months since the <laughs> yeah, event. Yeah, that's right. Also, he, uh, my understanding was he hadn't been playing 40K for a huge amount of time by comparison to some of the other Polish team players. I think that um, he is going to be an absolute gun in the years to come. Uh, even with a little bit of improvement, I honestly think this fellow can contend with some of the best players in the world. He's really exceptional. So uh, taking a different tack now, who was the best team to get on the Terps with afterwards? Oh, so um, I... Maybe I should explain to our – I don't know if they use that phrase in other countries. Just go for a drink with afterwards. Gee, you you are asking all the hard questions. Um, I I think that – so I I spent quite a lot of time at this event with Anthony Vanilla from uh, Team USA. Right. Uh, Absolutely a pleasure to hang out with, a pleasure to have a drink with, a pleasure to steal an entire bottle of whiskey uh, off (laughs) after the event um, because I don't think he could legally consume any more. And I think that – so I would – you know, big hands, a uh, big shout out to Anthony Vanilla. I would say that he's an uh, excellent player from the USA and he was mad fun to spend time with. But the best team overall, 
Oh, that is tough. I think for me, there doesn't need to be one if it is too tough. Uh, you know, it's like maybe everyone was just great to kind of hang out with and be around. Yeah, it, it's because it's eight man teams, right? You, even if you're playing a tough round, you might not even really have a chat with all eight people in the other team. Yeah. So I kind of pick, pick and choose people from, from all of my rounds based on my own sort of personal experience. Um, yeah, I think it's too hard, to be honest. Yeah. Not even, uh, I haven't played eight, but playing five-man teams events is, e- even then you you might mix with two or three of the guys from the other team. Certainly the person you're playing, maybe the captain, maybe other people you already know. You don't tend to get around the whole team and be super social unless you guys go out as big groups for a drink afterwards. Um, uh, team roles, uh, I've heard you talk about being the guy whose job it is to go out and get big scores and then other kind of members of the team rally around that. And I don't, I mean, there's probably a sporting analogy here somewhere, but if you're like the 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 scorer, the, uh, the shooting guard, say, in basketball, how do you guys in your team sort out who's going to do what? Surely everybody wants to be that guy that gets the good matchup and nobody wants to be the under-the-bus person. See, uh, I've actually found the opposite. Um, the I've found in team events, even smaller team events, um, people feel a lot of pressure having to be that player who gets big wins. And so more often than not, people actually say, I'm happy to play hard games, provided you accept that I might not win many of my games. Right. That, that actually seems to be what um, people prefer more. We're fortunate in that from a Team Australia perspective, this year in 2022, all of the players kind of, did what came naturally to them. The team had the sort of natural chemistry where you're going to have players who prefer to play um, lists that can score big and win big points. And I put myself in that category. And you would also have people who play incredibly defensive armies that can fight for every point and might end up losing a lot of games, but lose uh, 11 points to nine or 12 points to eight more often than not. And these are the people who I've always said are actually the backbone of a team because you are always in an eight-man team event, you might expect both sides to get 120, one incredibly big win. And then you're going to see both sides maybe get, I reckon, a a 12 to 15. You're then going to have two or three games that are around about a draw. Which of the games end up being a draw is what decides the round, in my opinion. Mm. And so... If you have someone who went into that game expecting to get 15 out of 20 and they end up getting 11, that might not sound like a big deal, but that's an eight-point swing, which is more than enough a team needs to win the round. You only need to get, I think it's like uh, 66 battle points or something overall for your team to win the round. So an eight-point swing is more than enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Actually, when I think about it, I was like, surely everybody wants to be the striker, the scorer, the guy going out there. But now that I think about my own attitude, I'd much rather say to my captain, <clears throat> no, I'll just give me a tough game. And that way I've got an excuse. If I if I come out of it with a draw or a narrow loss, I get to say, well, you know, you did throw me under the bus a little bit. I did bit, my so, job. Yeah. I did my job to the best of my ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to talk about e- uh, WTC, ETC for the whole uh, time we've got. And I'm aware that time is, you know, precious. Um but I, so let's switch over to your your podcasting life, if we can. The normal blokes, which I've got to say, I'm a fan of. I really enjoy the show. I oh, I, I tend to listen to more competitively focused, and even funnily enough, even if you guys are doing as you often do, like a preview of an event in Australia, 
you'll be running through lists and I get to go, oh, yeah, that's quite a good idea. Or, oh, I see how that would play. You know, you're kind of still learning something even from a long way away. But how did the podcasting thing come about? So um, when I started playing 40K in Brisbane, uh, there were a couple of different sort of smaller groups. And um, the Normal Blokes podcast had sort of recently started up. And the the podcast is itself a podcast from a group of friends, a a, a hobby group called The Normal Blokes. And um, so the group existed well before the podcast. Right. And and it was a reasonably small group. And I was part of a, a hobby group that was actually called Godhammer. And for anyone who recognizes that name, those were the dark days. Uh, no, j- jokes aside, um, the we were sort of new additions to the Godhammer group. And after a little while, I think that there was some cultural shifts. And so we were kind of looking for a new hobby group, uh, a new group of mates to, to play games with. And um, big thanks, you know, looking back on it, God, half a decade or so now <laughs> ago, if not longer. But um, people like uh, Denise, Luke and Jordan, also from the podcast, were supportive of myself and some of my closest mates, um, Ben Warrior, Brian Lakeland, Tim Curry, and a bunch of others joining the Normal Blokes as a hobby group. And very shortly after that, um, I joined the podcast too, which I'm, I'm super grateful for. So I was kind of the, the latest addition to that podcast. And I think that was about 80 episodes ago right. uh, of the podcast. So we've been going really strong since and, and really enjoy it. It's now a group of a, this hobby group, the Normal Blokes, is a group of about 20 guys and to put it in perspective um we're traveling to south australia for uprising adelaide which is the the biggest event in australia for singles and we've booked a house for 15 people so we've got an an absolute tribe traveling with us we're all going to be in our normal bloke shirts in the airport it's going to be incredible um just having this big big group of of mates who all have a similar attitude to the game and now i've seen uh, things like the normal blokes gt is that the same group of guys organizing events in your town or all around the country or how do you who sorts that uh, out it, it, it's just gonna it, just in brisbane uh, yep. where the normal work based um that was I, I ran that event a little while ago at uh, the wellis hill bowls club just a, a venue locally to uh, to myself the we i do have some plans uh, it's not too much of a preview to take some events um to a bit of an interstate circuit in the coming year um specifically with some wtc fundraising in mind great yeah, because you don't have enough on your plate. I think it's it's certainly viable to add more work for you to do by taking taking on you event will, management and taking it to other places. You will note that I uh, I mentioned this after my wife has left. The work. <laughs> yeah, so, very, um, good. very good. We should say for our listeners, uh, I'm talking to Liam. It's it's pretty early, like it's pre work hours. It's early in the morning uh, in Australia as we have this chat. Breakfast has been had, and now, well, not for you, but for your wife. And now <laughs> now she's left for work. So. Um, uh, yeah, I love that. The GTC, we've started, we've got a small group of guys organising events in New Zealand as well. We've got an event coming soon, 42, 44, like that, number of players. And the idea being just to kind of, uh, you know, get more and more, get more tables, get more terrain, get more and more people involved. But it is it is a mission. It is a big thing to take on organising an event like that. So do you get more of the normal blokes involved or do you take charge of that and you've got plans for the future? How does that work? No, a little bit of unpaid labour goes a long way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the last time we ran the Normal Blokes GT, we were setting up at the Bowls Club and um, a fellow, one of the Normal Blokes called Brent, uh, just kind of rocked up and started helping us. And then within half an hour, there was, a, I think, about 10 or 12 people 
um, from locally who'd just either driven down or started helping out. And we had the whole venue set up in like an hour and a half. Wow. Um, I mean, one of the advantages of, uh, it's an advantage and a disadvantage, right? And I'm sure in some ways New Zealand's similar in the, in Australia, as I'm sure people have heard, everything's so spread out. Like the, if, for right. example, it would take me six and a half hours to fly to Perth and, and play the Western Australian team championships. Yeah, yeah. Being so spread out means you have pretty dense clusters of 40K players. Right. So I live in Brisbane, which is the capital of a state called Queensland. And in this state, you know, for example, from um, Team Australia 2022, we have Eric, Simon, Hayden, Hayden Walduck, and myself. So half of the Australian team lives within 20, 30 minutes of myself. Wow. And so you do have quite a, a dense conglomeration of 40K players. So running events and getting event attendance is not a problem in the capital cities of Australia. Yeah. So what kind of, what sort of size was the normal bloke's GT and are you planning to grow it? Um, so when we did run it, it was a couple of years ago now, I think it was 50, 50 to 60 players. Right. Uh, so it, it wasn't huge. The, um, since we ran that event, there's been a number of groups who have really gained momentum in running events here in Brisbane. Um, the the Northside Alliance, which is a reasonably new club, run an amazing event called the Northside Alliance Open, which had a huge number of players. We've also got you know a, a Masters event and um, the Q, QCG, the uh, QGC, sorry, the Queensland Gamers uh, group, who also run um, some events. And so there does reach a point, I think, for event saturation. And I'm pleased to say, I thought it would never happen. I think we're pretty much at that point. Right. There's an event literally every couple of weeks, be it at Ipswich, um, be it at uh, Ace Comics and Games in Annalee, um, be it at the Gold Coast in Brisbane, that there's an event close by to myself all the time. Yeah. And we're not the most organised. If you go down south a little bit to New South Wales, uh, the Down Under 40K guys have a tournament circuit and they run an event. I see them on Facebook. It feels like they run an event almost every weekend. Yeah. It seems it seems incredible. Um, there's no shortage of events. We're, we're smarting a little bit over here in New Zealand at the moment because Adam Camilleri just came over for the New Zealand GT, the Kraken GT in Auckland, and won the blimmin' thing. So <laughs> he came over and uh, we were like, well, uh, you know, we've got some pretty good players, some pretty competitive players. They went to Australia and some of them performed reasonably well, uh, which actually, gave, because you're the world champions, gave us hope. We were like, hey, if we've got guys that can compete, you know, getting towards competing with the with your your players that gives us hope on the world stage it's great is, is new zealand going to be at the wtc 2023 there are there are plans afoot yes we're 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 very very, very close to being able to confirm a team for next year and certainly for the year after um now we've already covered off painting i'd like to know though uh just before we go just so that people can get an idea of maybe how to improve their own game are you a are you a spreadsheet guide like uh, I've heard some top players talk about? They cover off all eventualities so that when you turn up at the table, you go, I know what will happen here because of the numbers. Or are you more of an intuitive player who's just played enough so that you go, I know what that's going to do. Therefore, I know if I have to spend CP to defend or whatever. Um, d definitely the latter. I'm, I'm not a spreadsheet guy because even though we play a dice game, I think um, playing a game where maths is the most important decision maker in in your internal um, flowchart can lead you astray sometimes. The, right. the reality is sometimes you're going to roll three dice and every single one of them is going to be a six. Yeah. And I think that if you 
and that's an extreme example. But what I mean is if you build a game plan based on the 50% probability, even with like a 5 to 10% variation, 70% of the time you're going to be wrong. Right. And, yeah. and, and that, that's, I know that math probably does. Anyone who's a statistician will probably slap me. But the, the reality is, is that I just don't think that's a good way to play. The way I play it is probably a bit more intuitive, a bit more gut feel. But I get that gut feel by, you know, like I said at the very start of this podcast, using my time well. I don't, for example, um, go and play a three-hour round after work. I will play a game with my mate Brian and we might deploy, play turns one and two. And both of us are intuitive enough and both of us experienced enough. Oh, you're going to win this game. You're going to win this game by maybe about 15 to 20 points. These were the key mistake points. Let's re-rack and go again. Yeah, Brian okay. and I might sit down for three hours and play two, even three games of the first couple of turns. And that will sort of tell me, ah, the critical point, the, the, the juncture point was here. I needed to re-roll that saving throw to get back and do that. And so... If you look at somebody who spends a weekend gaming, if you have a hardcore weekend of, of 40K games, you might play three on a Saturday. That's a pretty big Saturday at a mate's place at a barbecue or something like that. If I go to someone's house and play games, I might play eight games in a day. Wow. And I do that by skipping all the extraneous stuff. To be perfectly honest, most of what most of the armies I play as well, I don't even alternate deploying with my opponent. Uh, if I'm playing a practice game, I'll just put my army down and be like, this is how I think I should deploy. What do you think? And they go, oh, yeah, you can improve this. They'll deploy. We'll go. And we'll have a game done in 45 minutes. Yeah, amazing. Actually, that's such a great, uh, it's such a great tip for people is, you know, very often you don't need to get through turns four, five, even three. So much of it is, is in, and again, this is from, from other top players, so much of it is in deployment and first turn, right? Just getting that, all of that movement, getting that figured out. I always found, until probably recently, uh, I found deploying just to be this, mind-bogglingly difficult thing to try and get right. How the hell do you deploy against all the yeah. different possibilities that are out there and knowing when to deploy conservative, conservatively and aggressively? And it takes so many reps to get that right. So just being able to do that over and over in a weekend is great. Oh, and like everything, it's practice makes perfect. You don't develop a gut instinct or a you know, sort of a, a sixth sense for things if you do it once a week even. And even though that sounds like that's more than a lot of people can put into the game, the reality is, like, you know, on, on a Friday afternoon, if I'm home for two and a half hours, you can have a mate come over and you can do just deployment. You can actually focus and work on one aspect of the yeah, game. Yeah. And I think that's, the, that's where, in my opinion, I feel like when people are trying to improve, I actually think that's the ceiling that a lot of people reach where they're doing really, really well. They're beating a lot of people in the local scene. But when they go and play practice games with mates, they want to play the full game because they want to get to turn five and be like, ha-ha, I beat you yeah. 96 to 10. Incredible. And it's like, well, that's fine. You've shown you can remain focused till the end of a game. But remain focused at the end of the game probably secures the score you were always going to get anyway. It's an important right. skill, but I don't think it's the most important skill. Right. I, I, the most important stuff happens turn one and two. Easy, yeah, like yeah. almost every game. Yeah, actually, it's, it's such a great tip for people if they if you've got time to play a whole game, play two beginnings of a game instead. Yeah. Uh, Especially if, with good brains. If you're practicing for an event, like that we're saying for competitive players, right? If you're trying to get better at that game. On that, uh, do you choose an army based purely on competitive, or do you have favourite factions because of you, you like the look of the models? I know that you've been through. You had a big stint with orcs. You had a big stint with T Suns and Necrons now and then, and then smatterings of other things here and there. 
Am I right no, in saying I those play, are your three I, big ones? I play, yeah, I play quite a few armies. I've got a pretty big collection upstairs confined to a single hobby room, uh, again, on, on orders of, of my wife. And if it spills out anywhere else, um, I, I do get in trouble, though, though it is prone to grow from time to time. Yeah. Um, in general, how I'll pick an army has changed quite a lot over the years. Um, in general, I've always at least tried to consider myself a player who plays something a little bit different. Yep. I'm not saying I'm going to go reinvent the wheel, but I will always try and bring an army that's the best for me, not necessarily the best overall. A good example of that is uh, my Necron build for WTC, in that I think that invariably Scorpec destroyers hit harder than raids. They just do. They're a better melee unit at meleeing things. But I like the movement. I like being able to move through things. And I like the durability of the four-up invos. I went with raids, counterattack raids. I had no Scorpex in my army. And that meant that for, for me, I wasn't able to kill as much, but I was able to take everyone's primary forever. And for me personally, that was what I get enjoyment out of doing. I, I, um, rather than killing half an army, the point where my opponent gets zero primary is like a big success, like a big win for me. Yeah. And I, I built a Necron army that does exactly that. So for me, I'll, I used to, and I still do, try and build an army that plays to my strengths, which is movement and the primary game. I, I'm not, I don't particularly focus on damage output, on numbers, on how much I need to actually kill my opponent. It's on whether or not I can fly over you and take your objectives off you, because for me, that's how you win games. More recently, and um, I'm sure some of the uh, the big-ticket American players would probably sympathize with this, more recently, um, I will look at who's attending an event and probably try and see what tools I need to reasonably compete with people. And, you know, a, a good example of that is that Demon's Flamers. Demons, Flamers, and Demons do not just mortal wounds from the Psychers, but the Flamers are just an incredibly potent force. And so the reality is, is that when I'm coming to an event, I'm thinking, can my army be shot by 18 Flamers? Will I die? And I, I have to, uh, you have to answer these specific questions to actually Yeah, yeah. I had a friend at a tournament charged him, uh, some of those Flamers with a knight <laughs> and learned that they can do, wow, Ooh. those things are just like, oh, at the moment. They're incredible. They're actually so strong. Yeah, that might change. That might change. But as we record this, so you don't choose, like you haven't chosen your armies, I guess is what I was asking through going, uh, and a lot of us would do this, man, I like the look of those models, therefore I'll play Orcs or therefore I'll play Necrons because I just love the models and I'll try and figure out a way to make them competitive. Or do you go straight through to what is the competitive army or an army I can make competitive right now and we'll do that. Forget about what they look like. Yeah, so you know, obviously there's lots of different aspects to the hobby. Um, being realistic for me, it's um, power, competitivity first. Mm. Probably second is actually fluff narrative. Um, despite the fact that I don't like uh, the painting and the hobby aspect, I love the novels. I love the audio books. I love reading if I'm procrastinating 40K wiki on just, you know, fluff for characters. I actually do love that aspect of the hobby. And then later down is how cool the models look um, and, and sort of the painting aspect. Um for example, my new project at the moment is I'm not exactly reinventing the wheel, but I've started a Blood Angel Army. Right. And I started Blood Angel Army um, quite literally because I got sent a, an audio book of um, Mephiston and getting caught under the rubble and overcoming the black rage and all sorts of shenanigans. And I was like, this is cool. I want to play with Mephiston. And so I, yeah. you know, I, built, a li- I built a list around that. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I approach it. And it doesn't hurt that they're, they're okay at the moment. Blood Angels are doing all right. Yeah. 
Uh, listen, I feel like I've taken up enough of your time. You're going to have to get to work and things and, and save lives. Thank you so much for, for joining me. I really do appreciate your time. And uh, keep up the great work, mate. Having someone uh, on this side of the world achieving so highly is an inspiration. I don't know if you know this, but it's an inspiration to an awful lot of people in my country and probably in yours. To see you go you, all that, the way to I Europe and do so well is great. Thank you very much. That That's definitely a good start for my day. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, mate. Nice to talk. A big thanks again to Liam Hackett. Listen, just so much great information in there and some top tips for improving your own tournament game. Go give the Normal Blokes podcast a listen for more of Liam. And please like, share, review this podcast. And if you're going to shop for 40K stuff, you're always going to shop for 40K stuff, right? Use the link on this podcast or on my website for Frontline Gaming's awesome store and you'd really, really be helping me out. Next time, we're going to meet Joe from War Games Live, a humble man doing amazing work. We'll see you then. I'm Steve Joel. This is Champions of 40K.